I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you like what you hear, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy it. I'm so excited to discuss my sponsor today, which is Page One Books, because my summer book bundle is ready on pageonebooks.com. And the bundle that I've put together includes three books that I picked, uh, Montauk by Nicola Harrison, More Myself by Alicia Keys, and I Miss You When I Blink by Mary Laura Philpot, all of which have been on this podcast here. Uh, it includes a Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, Beach Tote, a cute little library card pencil slash cosmetic case, and a water bottle for staying hydrated, plus a little... Um, thing of sun lotion. So go to page1books.com, page one with the number one. So page number one books.com and check out my page one books summer bundle. Buy it as a gift, a housewarming, if you actually go somewhere or just give it to yourself. Everybody needs a treat. We've had a long spring. <laughs> page one books.com. This is day five, the last day of this week for my July book blast. And today is Fiction Friday. I'll be releasing a few episodes of novels that I think are pretty awesome and can't wait to introduce you to these authors. I'm doing the July book blast because I interviewed a lot of people during quarantine and the books came out during quarantine and I would love them to get the airtime they need now to get the word out. Also, a lot of these books are great beach reads. And if you have any time this summer, I would love for you to hear more from these authors directly. So please enjoy Fiction Friday and stay tuned. This whole week was Memoir Monday, Debut Tuesday, Beach Reads Wednesday, Thrilling Thursday, and now today, Fiction Friday. I hope you've had a chance to listen to a few this week and enjoy this one. Bye. Leah Frankie is the author of Motherland, a novel. Leah is a graduate of Yale University and received an MFA at NYU Tisch. Her first novel, America for Beginners, was an indie next pick. A Puerto Rican Jewish native of Philadelphia, Frankie now lives with her Kolkata-born husband in Mumbai. Welcome, Leah. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. I'm so excited to talk to you about Motherland, which was so well-written, by the way. I loved how you did it. Like the immediacy of everything, how you're like in her brain from the minute the novel opens, you're immediately relating. Anybody who's had a mother-in-law can relate and not to say anything ill about my mother-in-law, but (laughs) just like, you know, I've now had two mother-in-laws and they're both great, but you know, anyway, I love how you just threw the reader right in there and like immediately related. And I just love books that start like that. (laughs) So anyway. Oh, thanks so much. (laughs) Anyway, so will you please tell listeners what Motherland is about and then what inspired you to write it? Absolutely. So Motherland is about a young woman, Rachel, who moves to India with her Indian-born husband. She's hoping that the experience will give her a life of sort of a new start and adventure. She's lost in her life and hoping this sort of big change to a country she's never been to will spark something for her. When she moves to India, she's pretty overwhelmed and she's even more overwhelmed when her mother-in-law decides to leave her father-in-law and her life in Calcutta and comes and moves in with Rachel and her husband in Mumbai. She's even more thrown when her husband has to go away for work and she's stuck with this woman she doesn't know very well in a city she doesn't know, in a country, in a culture she doesn't know. And the clash between them about how to live life in Mumbai and how to be in the world eventually turns into a friendship that benefits them both. I love how in the beginning, when when the mother-in-law shows up on the stoop and she takes her the suitcase inside for her mother-in-law and she thinks, if, if, if I... Like, maybe this was it. Maybe this was the moment. <laughs> 
moment. What if I hadn't brought the suitcase inside? I feel like that's the thing that I always do in my head. Like, what if that one thing had been different, right? I know. The sort of like looking back and being like, that was the moment. I could have changed it all. Yeah. I do that too. So I think I put that in that character because I do Yeah, that I figured. I figured. <laughs> yeah. What, so what, how did you come up with this, this story? What made you write this? Well, this story came out of a lot of life experience and a lot of imagination. So it's sort of both in equal kind of measure, I guess. I live in Mumbai. I moved to Mumbai with my Indian-born husband, who also happens to be from Calcutta, I guess in 2015. So, And before that, my mother-in-law had come to stay with us for about a month, right when we got married and moved in together. We kind of did both at the same time. And I'd never been to India before I moved to India. I didn't know a lot about India before I met my in-laws. The whole process was condensed by being sort of international, you know, an international family. And I did have this incident where I had like a a, a, a moment of incredible anxiety, which is where a lot of my work comes from, I think, where I was in my Brooklyn apartment and my tiny Brooklyn apartment and my mother-in-law had this fight with my father-in-law over the phone and my husband in Hindi was talking to her and I didn't understand what they were saying. And then he turned to me and he was like, mom's going to stay another month. And I was like, <laughs> um, what's that? <laughs> she, she didn't, it was sort of a joke. They were kind of like, trolling my my father-in-law but I had this moment of like what if she just stays forever like what if my mother-in-law just moves in with me and lives with me forever and like this is my life now and then I moved to Mumbai and got to know my in-laws better by visiting them in Calcutta and had this whole life experience of moving to Mumbai for similar but different reasons than my my protagonist in this novel but faced a lot of the dislocation and isolation and sort of culture shock and trying to figure out how to navigate, you know, my needs, my identity, all the me in this new sort of collective country filled with so many cultures, so many things that were so unfamiliar. And I had so many anxieties about, you know, what, what this international move would do to my marriage, what it would do to me. I have had incredible experiences in India. I've had difficult experiences in India. It's challenging. It's been wonderful for me. It's been wonderful for my marriage. But I do write a lot from the what if and like, what if it hadn't been? What if what if it hadn't made my relationship stronger? What if it had kind of defeated me in these other ways? What if my mother-in-law lived with me forever, you know? And so spinning out those anxieties into fantasies, into new characters and new people is kind of where the novel came from. This is not my life. This woman is not my mother-in-law. I'm not Rachel. But there are elements of sort of the real experience of living in Mumbai, integrating into an Indian family who have been nothing but incredibly wonderful and accepting of me. And also so sort of being challenged in terms of what I thought the world was living in one country versus sort of the wonderful perspective breaking thing that living in another country does. It sort of came, comes from all of that and more. <laughs> in Mumbai, do you live in the area where you can smell the fish? And oh, yeah, I actually, I do. I do. I live in like a neighborhood above the neighborhood I set it in, but this whole area is kind of um, along part of the coast. And so there's these fishermen who dry the fish out like along that coastline. So if you live anywhere near the coast, there's fishermen along it in Mumbai and you'll smell that at some point. I love how that <laughs> becomes uh, your character's like alarm clock that it's five o'clock basically like the smells and <laughs> that that's real yeah I would I would be I work from home a lot and I would like lose track of time and then suddenly be like oh I guess it's five o'clock 
There's like this neighborhood ice cream truck where we are right now and that comes by between 5 and 5.30 every day. And it's the same thing. Yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm like, I have to get up. I have to get up off of my desk chair. <laughs> Time to go for a walk. Like it's yeah. going to be dark. I better move for the day anyway. Yeah. So I love those like external markers of time. Yeah. <laughs> and you have a really interesting background where you're half Jewish and half Puerto Rican. Mm-hmm. Like how did your identity combining those two pieces of, I mean, combining your parents, essentially, how did they inform your own sort of sense of identity in the world? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So my father, his parents immigrated from Puerto Rico or migrated from Puerto Rico in the 19, in like 49, 50, which was like part of this wave of migration from Puerto Rico. And then my mom's parents are a mix of like first and third generation immigrants from what is now Russia. And my grandmother was like directly from Russia, but she actually grew up in Tehran. And I think that growing up, That didn't seem like that crazy of a mix, I think, because I grew up on the East Coast in a school, in an environment where a lot of people were some kind of mix. I think that I didn't know too many people who had like a Jewish Latino mix, but I've met them over the years. It's, you know, again, not the... I think mixture in in where I grew up in the United States seemed more normal than like being of one thing. But I do think that the negotiation of identity as I got older, as I got into high school and college, and the idea of what it meant to be enough of anything became a big part of how I got into writing, actually, because I think that the idea of being Puerto Rican enough or what enough meant or being Latina and what that meant to me and and also being Jewish and what that meant to me and deciding that I needed to start taking responsibility for my own religious philosophy. Like if I was going to perpetuate a belief in Judaism, it couldn't just be because I'd grown up going to synagogue. I'd grown up with my mother telling me to go to synagogue. It had to be something I started choosing or not choosing as an adult. So I think that college was a time when I really decided that that was important for me to explore what either of these two things meant for me and how I was going to deal with them. And writing became a great way to do that. I came into fiction as a dramatic writer and a lot of the work that I wrote before and during graduate school talked about a relationship to Puerto Rico, a relationship to being Latina, the the way I understood my family, trying to come to terms with my large Puerto Rican family and sort of the life I'd spent visiting them and connecting with them, but being separate from them and also sort of coming to terms with, you know, my family history on all sides. I think that the interesting thing about moving to a third party country that has no context for either of those things is that then your identity gets reimagined again by the people you meet. Because when I first met my in-laws, they had no context for Jewish, certainly. They had no context for Puerto Rican. I definitely sort of live as white right? I come from fairly European Puerto Rican stock, although of course there's a ton of mixing and I present as white. I am white. So all of those things that had kind of made up my identity in the States then became kind of not not erased, but like totally not as contextualized in India. So then I had a whole new identity of like being a white person in India, which has added a third layer of like information about myself and how I operate in the world. So I don't know. It's been a journey. It continues to be a journey. (laughs) I guess it's taught me that no matter how much you self-define, there's so much about how other people see you that you can't really control. And so you just have to recognize what you've come to terms with as yourself and do your best to be that, I guess. 
Yeah. You have to sort of have a, a really strong fundamental sense of who you are, regardless of what your background and your parents and the shade of your skin and yeah. all the rest. And like, I am, you know, I am who I am, whether I'm dropped down in the middle of a vegetable market in Mumbai yeah. or I'm like on the subway in New York or whatever else. It's like, yeah. Otherwise, I mean, it's just so confusing. <laughs> yeah, and you'll, and you'll let the world tell you what to be. You know, I think that's something that we think about a lot in the U.S. of like what I carry with me and what's important for me to bring everywhere I go. And that's a great thing about immigrant countries is that you have to personally decide what matters to you and what you want to carry with you rather than let your environment d- decide that for you. Right. So, you know, I've hosted a Seder every year. I've been in Mumbai for Passover because that I realized, wow, that's really important to me. You know, that's an important thing for me to do, for me to celebrate, even though there's no resources for that. There's no structure around that. It's just something that matters to me. And so, you know, you kind of learn who you are. In a way. Is there is there a Jewish community in Mumbai? So there used to be larger Jewish communities in a lot of major Indian cities, including Mumbai. There's a couple of really beautiful historic synagogues. It's really decreased since independence for many reasons. There are still a couple active synagogues and there is a Chabad house. And I have been to services at one of the really beautiful historic synagogues in Mumbai. It's like a Baghdadi. It was a it was historically a Baghdadi Jewish population. So that's like really interesting, really interesting migration pattern, really interesting food. They speak Ladrino, not Yiddish. They're Sephardic, but it's really tiny. So I've met maybe like one or two sort of Indian Jews in Mumbai. Hmm, so interesting. Yeah. You know, it's like it, it, the Seder is such a, a, a special moment because you're forced to always think about all the people around the world doing the exact same thing. Yeah. And now when I have my next Seder, I can think about you <laughs> in India. Like, cause it really is like all over the place. It's, yeah. it's, it's very exactly. special in that way. No matter what all Right. Yeah. Tell me a little more about the process of writing Motherland. How long did it take you to write? Like, where were you over there already? Like, tell me when and where you wrote it and all of that good stuff. Absolutely. So I'm a big drafter. I've realized that over time and I have come to terms with that as that's my process. So I'm a fast writer who writes many drafts. And that's just, I guess, so far, that's what served me. I was already living in Mumbai when I started writing Motherland. I started writing it about, I guess, six months before my first novel, America for Beginners, was released. So I was I worked on the first draft in Mumbai, and then I was really lucky I got a writer's residency in Italy, which was an incredible experience. And I worked on the second draft there, which was also very interesting to work on this novel that's very much set and embedded in Mumbai in sort of an idyllic vineyard in Italy. That was like real cognitive (laughs) dissonance there, but like incredible. And then I worked subsequent drafts with the help of my incredible agent, Julia Carden, who's always just so great at really seeing the things that I'm trying to do and failing at doing in my novels and helping me actually do them. So I would say all, and then, and then eventually my, you know, we sent this to my editor and of course she had incredible feedback, incredible edits as Rachel always does. And by the time I think it finally kind of sold, I guess, it had been about a year that I'd been working on it. And then, of course, there are subsequent drafts after my editor agreed to you know, publish it with her. So I think that it probably all told, you know, sort of first time I put fingers to computer versus copy, you know, final copy, probably around a year and nine, 10 months. 
about two years. It's not bad. No, really, no. really fast on the on the continuum. Yeah, <laughs> I think this is a book that really came out of me fairly quickly. I knew these two characters really well. I, I had an idea of the story. It's really about these two people. So plotting, you know, the intricate plotting that you sometimes do was not as much of the kind of labor as like, how do I most authentically really layer these people such that they both feel complete and total and really true. And now that it's out in the world, (laughs) are you already attacking a new project or are you focused mostly on publicity and all the rest that comes with releasing a book into the world, especially during this time? Oh boy. Well, during this time is a whole other, you know, kind of, you know, I think that all of us in the world are like, what are we doing during this time? And I think that all of us creatively are like, is, you know, there's a real sort of, we're all having parallel experiences of like, has this made us incredibly productive? And is this like a creatively rich time or just a creatively draining time where that's just not possible? And those are both like totally fair responses. You know, there's no, there's no like right way to be an artist. There's certainly no right way to be an artist or person right now. I'm always working on a lot of new things. I think that I, my husband likes to joke. I met my husband in graduate school for dramatic writing. And one of the arts of dramatic writing is distillation. And when I got into fiction, it was such a incredible release because you don't have to be as distilled in fiction. And my husband jokes that, of course, I've become a novelist because I have so much to say. And he's he's right in, in many ways. So I do, I have so many stories I'm interested in. I have so many things that I love writing. So right now I am working on a new, a new novel. I'm working on several TV scripts. I finished the first draft of a new play I've been working on for a long time. So I think that I'm really motivated by having multiple stories happening at once. They lift the weight of wanting to say everything in one place on the other. You know, like actually for me, spreading it out frees the work up to be what it wants to be rather than me trying to cram everything I'm thinking into one place at one time. So I'm, I'm always working on a lot of things. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Do you have any advice to aspiring authors? Oh boy. So much. And then also like, who am I to give advice? I feel that very, both things very strongly. It's okay. You you are completely (laughs) in the right to give advice. I am holding your novel in my hand. So that means that you can, you can give advice. Well, one of the things I often credit pursuing training in dramatic writing doing for me as a novelist is that uh, whether you do a program for it or not, I think the act of pursuing dramatic writing pushes you very hard to be unprecious because you write a lot of things into the void. You are encouraged in that field to write a lot of things and then discard them and write something new. Often in a dramatic writer's portfolio, they might have anywhere from, you know, five to 10 scripts that they've worked on. And, you know, say you're a TV writer, one of those might get you onto a writer's room and none of them will ever actually be made. They have the samples you made that you hoped would go somewhere, but they didn't. And then you move on and you move on. And there's a lot of throwing things out and moving on and throwing and moving. And I think that that's, especially in more commercial programs, which I would say NYU is both an artistic and a commercial program. That's the graduate school I went to. There is this push towards 
anti-preciousness. And I think that there's a time in your process to fall in love with what you have to say. I, I do it every time. But there's also a time to throw a lot out the door, especially if you're a writer like me. And so I think the best advice I have is just there's this impulse to write one thing and put so much weight and love into it that the idea of writing another thing feels like a horrible waste or incredible pain. And what you might end up with is one very beautiful thing that nobody wants to publish or serves you at a certain point in time and doesn't sort of serve you later. And so I think that the best advice I have is just to write lots of things, write lots of stories. Yes, treasure, of course, treasure that big novel inside of you that takes 10 years to write. But, you know, one of the things that writers who write for a lot, lot, like spend a lot more time on a project than maybe I have right now is that they also had 10 other things they were writing in that time. You know, it's it, when we talk about a writer who's spent 10 years on a book, they've often written and done so many other things that kept fueling that, kept fueling that one big thing. So the myth of, you know, I worked on a novel for 15 years and then it was Swan's Way kind of, you know, it, I think it tricks people into feeling that all of their mental energy should be spent on this one thing and then it'll be perfect. And maybe there are people who work like that and that's incredible. But for me, the most fruitful thing to keep myself writing, keep myself excited because you want to fall in love, you want to be excited about the work is to write multiple things at once and let yourself kind of remember that you have more than one story in you. I love that. Well, Leah, thank you so much. I love like just the fact that we can talk across the entire planet basically about (laughs) your book and that like words can just unite us so much. I mean, it's like, it's so great. It just feels so neat to be able to to do this from where you are and have your your words like here in my home and you're so far away. I don't know. Just no, I love that. Cool. I love that about story. You know, I, when I first met my husband, we were talking about this and he had this anxiety about the kind of stories he wanted to tell, like, who's going to care, you know, who's going to care about this story set in Calcutta. We're in a grad school in New York. No one's going to, you know, who, who's going to care. And I asked him, well, what are some of the stories that you've loved the best? Do they all come from exactly your life perspective? And he was like, no, you know, I love the blue, white and red trilogy. I love old boy. I love all of these things that come out of my context, but helped me see something in my context. I think that's the incredible thing about story. That's awesome. Thank you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. I can't wait to read what you have coming up and I have to go back now and read. I never read America for Beginners, so I'm going to go back and read that and thank you forward to to your your next batch. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been an incredible pleasure. Bye. Thanks so much to listening to Fiction Friday, part of the July Book Blast of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I hope that you found some really great reads this week. All five days I've launched tons of episodes so that I can entertain you and you can connect with stories and just feel a little better in the world knowing that these stories exist and that these authors are out there. So I hope you enjoyed all of these Fiction Friday episodes and that you had a great day and I hope you have a really great weekend and come back next week because I'm doing one more week, one more five days, I should say, of another July book blast week and I'll have five new fun days then and then back to normal. But anyway, you can have a little like binge podcast fest or something. (laughs) Anyway, have a great weekend. Thanks again for listening to my podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you liked this episode, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and sign up for my mailing list at zibbyowens.com so you can always hear about the latest things I'm up to. Thanks a lot.
Thanks so much to Page One Books for sponsoring today's episode. I hope you'll all check out my summer beach bundle at pageonebooks.com. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Thank you.